this week on the Backtable podcast. You know, remember a couple other things for a, a new adopter who's just trying to get started or maybe a somebody fresh out of training who doesn't have, you know, the luxury of a, of a robust profit and loss and a lot of money coming in. You know, this is where you leverage your industry partners. You literally say to them, listen, I want to get started. I need your help. I need you to bring in a demo for me for my first five cases. And I need you to let me try a couple cases with your balloon to make sure that this is something. So, you know, you get a couple cases and that's part of trialing the balloon, right? You know, you get a couple free cases to check it out, decide which technology you want to use. They'll bring in a camera for you to demo. They'll bring in a tower. I mean, they'll really, they'll bring in the mini fest set for, you know, three or four cases. So highly recommend doing that. Um, it'll generate some income. It'll generate some confidence. And then it'll allow you to really fine tune what you like, what you dislike, what you're looking for, kind of for a more permanent fix. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with the hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. And now a quick word from our sponsor, Stryker. Stryker's ENT solutions offer the control you need, the flexibility you want, and enable you to deliver the experience your patients deserve. With Stryker, you gain access to the most complete suite of solutions to help make your vision of patient care a reality. From technology to training, from reimbursement tools to patient education, Stryker is there to help. Together with their customers, they are driven to make healthcare better. Learn more at ent.stryker.com. My name is Gopi Shaw, and I'm a pediatric ENT here in Dallas, Texas. And today I have two very awesome guests on a great topic. I have Dr. Ashley Secan. He's an otolaryngologist at Nevada Sinus Relief in Las Vegas. His focus is on the diagnosis and management of sinus disease and nasal disorders of the nose. He's an expert in endoscopic sinus and skull-based surgery, as well as a pioneer of office-based, less invasive techniques. We also have Dr. Brian Weeks, who's an otolaryngologist at the Senta Medical Clinic in San Diego, California. He specializes in sinonasal disease, sleep, and thyroid problems. And they are here today to talk to us about in-office procedures for nasal obstruction. Welcome to the show, guys. Awesome to be here, Gopi. Thanks so much for having us. Really, really excited to be here. Yeah, thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice? Yeah, I'll start off, Ash. Brian Weeks, I think one of the neat things about my practice and my journey in otolaryngology is that I'm a second-generation otolaryngologist. So I was able to join my dad in practice and my dad's currently been practicing, you know, in some sort for 52 years. So he started Senta Clinic 52 years ago and, you know, it's been a really special time and it's made all the innovations and all the things that we're doing differently that much more impactful because my dad, I have it from my perspective and then also from my dad's perspective. So yeah, I really love it. So happy I'm an ear, nose and throat specialist. I almost became, well, I almost went into plastic surgery. I was thinking it would be cool to be a heart surgeon. And like, I thank my lucky star every day that I chose an ENT. Great. Thanks, uh, Brian. I think one of the unique things about my practice is that I'm in a uh, nine physician single specialty ENT practice here in Las Vegas. And the practice has existed since uh, 1968. My practice is focused on doing office-based uh, rhinology. I also do outpatient rhinology at the surgery center, but uh, I sort of evolved that way since about 2007 when we first started doing in-office cases using uh, balloon sinus dilation and have been really fortunate to adapt those exciting and interesting uh, new technologies to help patients in a new venue and collaborate with other physicians like Dr. Weeks and, and so on across the country. Um, so that's been an interesting and evolving journey over time. How did you find yourself specializing in office-based procedures? And is that kind of how you guys began working together? Yes, on both fronts. With the advent of balloon sinus dilation technology, I, was, uh, I think an early adapter. And one of my mentors, Dr. Winston Vaughn, was uh, involved in the first in-man studies for uh, balloon sinus dilation and got me interested in using the technology first in the hospital and then the surgery center. And when it switched over from uh, using uh, floral techniques to Translumination, I was able to think about bringing it to the office. And then I collaborated with uh, another eminent rhinologist named uh, Michael Sillers in uh, Alabama, formerly uh, president of the American Rhinological Society, and writing the first paper on uh, in office balloon sinus dilation techniques. And uh, then I got involved with other uh, colleagues like Dr. Weeks in um, presenting and developing uh, something called a sinus form and also collaborating and writing a number of uh, research papers. 
and expanding the uh, use of techniques in the office to help patients uh, without requirements for uh, hospital or general anesthesia. So I'll let Dr. Weeks comment further on our collaboration and, and his journey as well. Yeah, I mean, it's such an interesting reflection, but I think the first thing I learned is when something comes across your bow, don't be closed-minded, be open-minded. I'll just tell a quick story. It's actually quite funny. I'm in my office. I'm just starting in practice. This is in late 2006. I'm working hard and I'm there late at night. And we'd had some break-ins at the hospital. Our old office was connected to the hospital and there were some break-ins. And so I'm sitting at my desk. I was always the last person out of the office. And I hear somebody walking in the hallway and I'm like, okay, nobody's supposed to be here. I know I'm the only person. So I had a baseball bat in my office. So I picked up the baseball bat and I, I have the baseball bat cocked back, you know, as if somebody's coming to try to steal from me. And I have it cocked back and this guy walks into my door and he's obviously like a professional guy, you know, dressed in nice clothes. And I was about to swing the bat at him and I go, yeah, what do you want? How can I help you? And he goes, I'm looking for Dr. Brian Weeks. And I was like, okay, well, yeah, I'm, I'm Dr. Brian Weeks. And he goes, hey, my name's Tom O'Neill and I work for a, a small startup company called Eclarent. And I was like, okay. So anyway, so he gives me a brochure and he goes, we created this technology to treat sinuses. And I said, Okay. I mean, that's, I listened and it, it immediately sounded like, wow, that sounds like a really cool idea. We all knew about angioplasty. So the long and the short is I got invited to go up. I ultimately became a board, a member of the scientific advisory board and of a Clarence right at, after the clear study came out. But I was on the board with Howard Levine, Mike Sillers, Ray Weiss, Pete Catalano, Fred Kuhn. I mean, all these eminent rhinologists around the country. And, you know, so that, that was one of the first lessons I learned was don't, poo-poo new technologies just because you don't know anything about it. Be open-minded. And then the second thing I'll tell you that's really funny is after we had developed a couple technologies within the balloon platform to allow us to be more successful and even less invasive and less cumbersome, we decided to do the study called the Oreo study. So I remember I was recruited like the first patient for the Oreo study. And we did this case in the office and it was like this woman with an isolated frontal sinusitis or chronic frontal sinusitis. And we had all this equipment and we knew nothing about anesthesia. We knew nothing about, you know, the way to do this. And this case was awful. It was like, it took like two hours. I had like five people in the room with me. The patient was screaming and it was one of those miserable experiences. And so those are two really interesting reflection points for me because it's sort of the beginning of these journeys. And now like, you know, we can do six or eight or 10 office cases in a day seamlessly. Patients feel nothing. It's just a really cool way to reflect on the journey. But yeah, Ash and I have been able to work together on quite a few studies and papers and courses. And we run a couple of courses now, you know, every year in Vegas. And so it's been an incredibly rewarding journey. Those are great reflection points for sure. How do you keep going? I mean, it's very easy to be discouraged when you have a case like that, whether it's obviously in the OR, but much more in your clinic when the patient's awake. Yeah. I mean, I'll start and ask, I mean, I'm sure you can share, you know, some wonderful anecdotes as well. I think those types of adversity either strengthens you or it defeats you. And the way I looked at it was I felt like we were really doing something great. I mean, one of the things that we learned after the Oreo study was done is like you know, we were delivering something that had a real place. I mean, is balloon sinuplastic for every patient? Of course not. Is it for appropriate patients with disease that's amenable to that? Yes, it is. And there's a large body of patients. But I guess what energized me was the fact that I felt like we were doing something significant that was ultimately going to change the way medicine was practiced. And that was compelling enough that it made it worthwhile. So that for me, that was the, the light was that we were giving back something to our field. Yeah, I think I'll say that a key point that I'd like to emphasize for my colleagues is that you're never alone in your quest to improve patient care and advance through challenges and achieve better results. And by that, I mean, I was always like fortunate to be surrounded by colleagues I could reach out to across the country, Brian being one of them, but he's mentioned a number of others. And in addition to that, you build your own team here, right? So people, everybody from physician assistants to uh, medical assistants to office managers and so on. So you're working, you're all working as a team you may be sort of quarterbacking it, but it's important to have all of those elements and, you know, they foster uh, better care for the patient. And then finally, our, I think uh, we all owe uh, some gratitude to our patients for, you know, in Brian's anecdote, putting up with our first procedures in the office and in whatever element or area that we're 
trying to progress and uh, encountering some challenging situations. So I think all those uh, combinations keep us motivated. Our friends, our colleagues, our, the, the nurses and people we work with, and then, of course, uh, the patients that we're trying to help. Yeah, that's great. So I wanted to talk specifically about in-clinic or in-office procedures specific for nasal obstruction. What are the different procedures kind of fit that group? What are the procedures that are in-clinic done for nasal obstruction that you do? Maybe I'll start with one of the more common causes of nasal obstruction that I've been interested in kind of working with and treating in the office, and that's uh, deviated nasal septum. So a lot of people did septoplasties under local anesthesia back in the 1950s and 60s. And, you know, Dr. Weeks's father may have remembered those days in his training as well. We kind of, uh, I think that's encountering a resurgence now with better local anesthesia techniques and minimal sedation techniques. We can do it in the office. I became interested in that because a lot of my patients may have had sinus disease, but they also had nasal obstruction frequently from a deviated nasal septum. So I found that interesting, uh, at times challenging, but the focus has always been on providing a proficient procedure with the patient having uh, not only a good outcome, but a good experience. So not encountering the discomfort. And uh, that relates to our meticulous uh, anesthesia technique that, you know, we owe a debt of gratitude actually to our colleagues in oral surgery and dentistry. I read the early papers there about blocks and the type of anesthesia that's used. Sphenopalatine blocks and our early pioneers in ENT I use that. And I essentially, I use that almost on every patient that I do in the office. And then sort of an evolving science of uh, minimal sedation or not true conscious sedation, but sort of anxiolysis with some pain management that I think is continuing to evolve. So the septoplasty, I think, is a very in many cases, is very amenable to the office. Not all cases in severely deviated septums where you can't even get close to doing a sphenopalatine block. I don't recommend it, but we've been able to do a large series uh, that we'll be reporting on shortly. So uh, that's one thing I definitely uh, would encourage people who have had some experience within office to consider uh, a septoplasty as well. Yeah, I can add, uh, I think, you know, to dovetail on that and complement it. The other, I think, area that we're really seeing, you know, kind of a rebirth, if you would, is dealing with the nasal valve. And, you know, first off, when I was in my training, I trained at Baylor College of Medicine. I'm proud. I had a wonderful training, great county hospital. And I'll absolutely second what Ash said about the oral surgeons. I mean, we, our clinic and oral surgery were back to back. So we could, we had a common hallway. We would also cover facial trauma with plastics and oral surgery. And those guys would like, basically do mandible fractures in the clinic. And I would go down there and I learned like there was a doctor named James Johnson, who was an older oral surgeon who was retired and would come and teach the residents. And I learned so much from that man about how to anesthetize the lower jaw and the upper jaw and the dentition. And so, yeah, that's made, you know, the office journey that much easier. I mean, the other thing that I would say about anesthesia, particularly with nasal surgery is, is, you know, go back to your textbooks and, and understand sort of what you're trying to achieve. I mean, I went back and reviewed the anatomy of the trigeminal nerve, specifically V1 and V2 for the nose. And you think, oh, if I just do this, you know, block this, it'll work. But specifically, there are very, very small branches that you can block kind of tactically and it achieves incredible anesthesia. But for the nasal, nasal valve, I mean, honestly, like the biggest thing that's advanced our ability to treat that is, first of all, awareness and secondly, technology. And with technology, breeds awareness. I mean, when I was in my training, you know, the only people that dealt with the nasal valve were the facial plastic surgeons and they would do like batten grafts and, you know, spreader grafts. And it was a kind of a big deal for the patient. And, you know, you're kind of like, wow, I don't know if I really want to be doing that. I'll just send most of the plastic surgeons. And so for that, you know, it's kind of like eustachian tube dysfunction. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many people I've seen for eustachian tube dysfunction who come to me and say, I saw my ENT, I saw three ENTs and they told me there was nothing wrong. What that really means is we don't have anything to do for you. So, you know, sorry. But now that we have these amazing treatments that are, that are very amenable to local anesthesia and, you know, really office-based therapies, I mean, I think there's been an emergence. And clearly when you review the current literature and look at quality of life scores and, and no scores and, and things like that, you'll see that addressing the nasal valve as part of a triad of nasal airway obstruction, you know, anatomic issues is really, really impactful on improvement in breathing. And so I want to get into the anesthesia portion as well. But before we get to there, we've talked about 
deviated nasal septum, nasal valve, and I would imagine probably a lot of turbinate obstruction in terms of nasal obstruction. What else? Am I missing other? Because when I think of nasal obstruction, those are kind of the three that I think of, but I'm sure there's other things I should be thinking of. Yeah, I think I can just add and ask if you have anything else. But, you know, obviously things like nasal polyps, polypoid nasal obstruction, and then, you know, even things like just, you know, the effects of chronic rhinitis conditions, things like that. I mean, we, we have the ability to effectively treat all of those diseases in the office. And I think, you know, specifically with polyps, I think most ENT doctors that have an office-based platform have a microdebreeder in the office. I mean, we use our microdebreeder every single day in the office. And it's not uncommon to, you know, to remove the large burden of polyps in the office. Interestingly, I was just having a conversation at the course here in Scottsdale, and it's actually far easier to remove nasal polyps in the office than in the OR because there's really no bleeding in the office. And I know that sounds crazy, but the patients aren't vasodilated and there aren't, you know, any sort of, there's no lability in the blood pressure. And these are essentially avascular procedures. Ash, I mean, you do, do a ton of ethmoidectomy and, and nasal polypectomies as well in the office. I mean, I'll let you speak to that, but would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I started getting very interested in office-based procedures because I got a lot of referrals from pulmonologists whose patients have COPD and other chronic conditions that make it difficult for them to undergo general anesthesia, but they can't breathe through the nose because of, in many cases, nasal polyps or hypertrophy turbinates, a very large or expanding conchabulosa that becomes infected. So these conditions are all amenable to being treated in the office and with significantly less risk or morbidity than uh, doing them under general anesthesia. So agree hundred percent with you, Brian, on that. So I think we've sort of dealt with the panoply of nasal obstruction etiology there by adding the pulps and then and perhaps concha bullosa and, and, and turbinate hypertrophy, uh, chronic rhinitis. All of these are, are challenges and very common conditions that we deal with. And, you know, I, I also agree with the fact that the advent of newer technologies actually make us more aware of some of these problems. And, uh, you know, a simple example is the development of nasal endoscopy to be able to refine our evaluation of the nasal airway and perhaps emerging technologies that allow us to scan the nasal airway, determine sites of obstruction and become uh, much more precise in developing a treatment paradigm for managing those conditions. So when these patients come, do you feel like you do everything on like one single procedure day or let's say for the person that's just starting out that may not be able to fill a half day or a day of procedures, should they just block a morning and have that one patient? Or do you ever, do you know people that, you know, they see patients in between and then kind of have an hour in between in the mid-morning for a procedure? How does the scheduling work? Or is that just physician dependent on what they feel works in their practice? I'll go first, but, you know, I mean, it's good to have two of us here. So we probably do things a little bit differently. And that's also evolved for me as well. Uh, I think when I first started, I used to, I had one afternoon a week because my, the number of patients I selected was less because I wasn't doing things like septoplasty and so on at that time. But now it's kind of changed. I do half days. So I do four half days a week in which uh, we do uh, office procedures. And then all I do during that time is focus on the, uh, on the case at hand. For me, it's uh, easier patient flow. I use two rooms to do that. And so one room serves as a pre-op and post-op room and the other is the actual procedure room where I have everything set up and that flow works well for me. We have a team that usually consists of my medical assistant, sometimes my physician assistant helping me. And then frequently uh, we have either medical students, residents, or visiting uh, otolaryngologists from other parts of the country observing as well. So that's how it's evolved for me. I'll let Brian describe his office flow. Yeah, Gopi, you know, Ash, I love it. I think it's great the way you're doing it. What I would basically say to, to anybody who's contemplating, you know, getting started or trying to figure this out is, you know, right at the beginning, definitely err on the side of giving yourself a little bit of extra time because what will end up happening is if you feel rushed or things don't go as smoothly as expected, you know, you don't ever want to feel that time crunch. When I started out, I was bouncing between my office and the OR, you know, on the same days. And what I found was I was always either late to one of the places and I was always stressed. So I would advise, you know, when you're starting out, you know, book an extra hour, maybe more than you think you need at the beginning. And ultimately what will happen is, is I think as your volume grows and as your confidence grows, your volume will grow. The patients are there. It's just a matter of you kind of finding out that you can actually do as much as you want to do in the office. And you're, as long as you're, you know, being sensible 
and and just growing your confidence. That will naturally be how things transpire. And then, you know, I think from efficiency's sake, we have a, a pretty streamlined process, just like Dr. Seekan does, where we have our PAs and and our MAs working. We have, you know, a really good patient flow. So I can, you know, frequently have a patient anesthetizing and I'll be seeing a pre-op or a post-op or a, or a new patient in between. And then, and that's where the efficiencies come in. And for my practice in particular, I have dedicated full days in the office and I either do one or two full days a week. And then I have dedicated days in the hospital or surgery center. And then I have dedicated days where I just see patients. The caveat to that is I consider office procedures as sinus and eustachian tube dilation and lateras. And I don't consider Clarifix is a procedure that I do frequently, and that's just rolled right into my normal patient flow. So those patients are not part of a, a procedure day because Clarifix is, a, is very, very quick. After the anesthesia, it, the procedure takes, it takes me about seven or eight minutes total time in the patient room. Okay. Just because I'm not as familiar with those. The Latera is a nasal valve, the nasal valve device, and the Clarifix is, I apologize, I don't know what the Clarifix is. <laughs> no, it's no problem. So I'll tell you exactly. So Latera is the lateral nasal wall implant, and that is the, the stabilizing implant that stabilizes the internal nasal valve. Uh, and it's made specifically for dynamic uh, nasal valve collapse. And yeah, so it prevents that or improves that. And then Clarifix is posterior nasal nerve or postganglionic branches of the sphenopalatine cryo cryoablation. So it's a freezing and there's, you know, there's other technologies too. There's, there's a competitive technology called Ryanair. Um, and then Latera's, you know, kind of competitive technology is something called Vaver. And that's more, in my opinion, ideal for uh, static nasal valve hypertrophy, as opposed to dynamic nasal valve collapse. And then in terms of the uh, deviated septum in the clinic, is it more for that posterior nasal spur that you can kind of cut down on or describe? Which, I mean, I know I, I would imagine the super twisted crooked that's kind of out in the front, probably not. And is there a device for this or, or is it the standard numb them up, create the flap? Yeah. So when I'm talking about septoplasm, I'm talking about a full septoplasty with, you know, either a hemitransfixion or killing incision, elevating a mucoperichondral, mucoperiosteal flaps and treating whatever needs to be treated with the vomerine bone deviation or deflection, as well as the caudal septum dealing with the cartilaginous deflection as well. So I'm talking about a standard septoplasty. The caveat there for doing the office is you have to be able to endoscopically get back to the region of the sphenopalatine nerve distribution in order to block it. So I, I usually place my block medially fairly close to the posterior nasal septum and let the, the local anesthesia migrate laterally and it uh, includes the, the nerve. So if you cannot do that, then the patient's probably not a good candidate for doing the office because that sphenopalatine uh, block beautifully anesthetizes the most of the nasal septum. And you need that on board, not only for local anesthesia, but also helps really minimize any uh, bleeding. But then you have to do infiltration of the uh, caudal septum as well separately. So I rely on on sort of what I call back migration of the uh, anesthesia. So injecting the mucosa and then it'll, the anesthetic effect will backflow to the uh, very uh, anterior caudal septum and you get good anesthesia before you actually undertake it. The whole concept of just a spur and you just take that off, that's pretty easy. And that's been, been done before with the, you know, just elevating a flap, taking off with Takahashi or whatever. So that's, I don't really consider that a full, you can bill it as an endoscopic septoplasty, as we all know, appropriately so, but that's not, I, when I talk about doing the septoplasty, I'm talking about doing something more on that. There have been, I think, some tools developed for septoplasty and other options. So I'll let Dr. Weeks maybe comment on all of that. Yeah. I mean, I've actually been with Dr. Seekhand for his septoplasties. He does a full-on subsection septoplasty. And I do it too. I probably do fewer septoplasties in the office than, than Dr. Seekan does, but I still do quite a few. And then, yeah, as far as devices developed to help us with septal surgery in the office, there's really one device that I know of uh, on the market right now. It's called the Tract Balloon, and it's made by a clarent. It's actually a very, very good device for the right type of nasal air obstruction. I think the only issue there, Gopi, is that there's really not a code to bill for it. And it's, it's not an inexpensive, it's not a ridiculously expensive device. I think it costs about 400 or $500, but it's not something that we really have a code for. So you can't bill for it. And I think that does make it a little bit challenging, uh, just as we think about the office and 
you know, the expense to the physician, but as an access tool for someone who's not comfortable doing septal surgery, but wants to maintain those patients in an office setting, it's actually a useful tool as a complementary device to, to the other platforms that we have. And is that then kind of pushing the swell body out or does it actually kind of make like a mini fracture along the cartilaginous? How does that work? Yeah, it's a great question. The way I could describe it for people that don't know, most people are familiar with uh, the airway balloon that have used for like subglottic stenosis, things like that. It's very similar in its design to the airway balloon. It's a high pressure, uh, non-compliant balloon, and it actually does fracture the vomerine bone. And it also effectively outfractures the inferior turbinates. So you get that duality of treatment. But yeah, it's meant to actually microfracture or fracture and reposition the septum. I think the difficulty is that it's effective when you uh, have something going on at the maxillary crest. You can sort of fracture the crest over. It's not a great tool for cartilage simply because cartilage has memory, right? And you, you dilate it and then it just gradually creeps back over you know hours to days. But I think it's effective dealing with kind of bony cartilaginous junction issues, certainly spurs, and then maxillary crest deformities. And if you fracture those structural areas over, the cartilage frequently comes with it. So this is not an in-office question, but just a personal question. Doyles or no doyles? Splints after septoplasty or no splints after septoplasty? No splints for me. I don't, I think that the patients that I've, that have had them just always report they're really uncomfortable. So I do place uh, Doyle splints, but I take them out the next day. So it's just overnight. I done it without them, but I guess personally, we got some uh, more callbacks on that, uh, on those patients that were having some bleeding, not anything that you, one would put packing in for, but it was more annoying than if you put in the splints So they'd called me and, uh, you know, it gives me an opportunity to check the patient the next day, just counsel them again and make sure they're in the right treatment plan with the rinses and so on. So full transparency, I. I actually do put packing in the nose on most patients. I put a laminated Miracell sponge and I take it out the next morning. So it's in for anywhere from 16 to 20 hours and it's very tolerable. And uh, most of the patients are still kind of under, you know, they're sleepy from their anesthesia or still. So it's really not cumbersome, but you know, the, the doyle splints I've heard from a lot of patients, they're hard, they're uncomfortable. And they really, after most people leave them in about five days, that's really uncomfortable. Yeah, I think that, I, I, so it's, it sounds like we're actually, I, 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 I this is something I didn't know about, uh, about your practice is uh, that you place the uh, Maricel kind of, it's pretty similar. We both take them out in 20 hours, within 20 hours. And it sounds like it's more for hemostasis than it is to kind of hold anything in the middle, if you will. For me, it's for hemostasis uh, mostly, yeah. All right. So going back, we talked about blocks, some anxiolytics. Do you have like a anesthesia protocol or does it depend on, okay, I know I need to do the SPA for my septoplasty, but I might be blocking something different for the um, Latera valve splint or implant? Right. So I think we talked about those dark weeks and I we some of our courses we presented together, but we have very similar protocols, but they do vary a little bit. There's some variation depending on what procedure we are, we attempt, we're accomplishing. So it's a little diff- definitely a little different if you're doing Clarifix or Latera, which required a different type of anesthesia protocol. But I'll just comment on my anesthesia protocol for sinus work, whether it's uh, balloon dilation polyps, as well as for if I'm doing septoplasty or turbinate work. I guess it can be divided into three sections. The first is, what do you do for anxiolysis? So that's number one. And number two, what do we use for surface anesthesia or topical anesthesia? And third, uh, what type of infiltrative anesthesia protocol do we have? So just briefly uh, for anxiolysis, I'm like Dr. Weeks, we're, we're in states that have pretty uh, significant and clear guidelines, our state boards do, on what type of anesthesia or what type of anxiolysis we can deliver in an office setting. And that, uh, you know, we conform to that because the American Society of Anesthesiologists looks at uh, minimal sedation or anxiolysis in the same section, and that is not considered to be conscious sedation. So the patient is uh, verbally responsive. He or she can protect their airway, and there's a minimal cognitive impairment in those patients. So uh, an example would be if you provided somebody with a triazolam or um, lorazepam, relatively low dose, like a sleeping pill, basically. And uh, so 
I use uh, lorazepam and typically I use one milligram. Occasionally in younger patients who I feel have a little higher anxiety, I'll use uh, two milligrams of lorazepam. And uh, that's equivalent to five to 10 milligrams of uh, Valium in that zone. Then I typically have not used uh, any opioids, but recently, and I'll let Dr. Weeks comment as well, we were trialing a um, rapid onset sublingual opioid that does not cause respiratory depression. And you know, I think in certain settings, in certain situations, it'll also be quite helpful in uh, providing that type of anxiolysis for the patient. Moving on to surface anesthesia, I really emphasize it. So that's, I spray the patient's nose with our lidocaine and neosinephrine mixture, 4% lidocaine and a 50-50. Then I place pledgets, the same mixture. And then most importantly, I use ponicaine gel. And that is a very potent topical anesthetic, 6% uh, ponicaine gel. And I place it myself with a blunt needle under endoscopic guidance on all the areas that I'm going to be touching really. It doesn't take very long. Maybe it takes application, probably takes them like two, three minutes total, and it works very rapidly. And after that, I find patients do not have a problem with my next step, which is infiltrative anesthesia. So depending on what I'm doing, if I'm doing septoplasty work, turbinate work, or any significant level of balloon sinus dilation, other than just to say if I'm working on an isolated frontal sinus, I, I use sphenopalatine block, then I'll also infiltrate the middle turbinate and superior to the middle turbinate as well as well as the inferior turbinate from working on that. So I still don't use very much actual infiltration. Even when I'm doing a septoplasty, I'd probably say 10 cc's or less of 1% uh, lidocaine with 1 in 100,000 epinephrine or 1 in 200,000 epinephrine for patients who may have some uh, cardiovascular issues. So my patients are monitored with their O2 sats and their uh, heart rate. And that's protocol that we've been using now for well, over a decade. And I think if you set expectations, really uh, communicate with your patient, communicate with your team, develop a great team and, you know, create an atmosphere that uh, puts the patient at ease. We have music playing in the background, patients that want to use headsets, they can, things like this. And I, I think that really makes for an, the best uh, office-based experience. So I'll let uh, Dr. Weeks uh, comment on any differences he has in his anesthesia technique, plus how he manages the uh, Clarifix and, uh, you know, Latera patients. Yeah. Thanks, Ash. That was comprehensive. And I mean, he's Dr. Dr. Seekin's a master at topical anesthesia for sure. I think, you know, our protocols are very similar. I use, I used actually two milligrams of Ativan. The thing about benzos in particular is that they're incredibly safe. There's zero risk of respiratory depression. I mean, literally you can give it in the oldest patient and, and they'll, they'll be very, you know, they'll look like they had way too much to drink at the party, but they're never going to stop breathing and they don't have any problems with those types of catastrophic things. So they're very safe. Um, I use those in conjunction with a similar topical and infiltrative. I use just liquid 4% tetracaine mixed with uh, oxymetazolone and that works really, really well. But I would agree tetracaine or pontacaine is the workhorse anesthetic uh, in, in office procedures. As far as Latera goes, again, I anesthetize the vestibular, kind of ailer vestibular junction, internal inside the nose with uh, some topical either tetracaine gel or tetracaine soaked cottonoids sort of for about 10 minutes. And then when I come into the room, the patients had their angiolysis medications before, and we give those, we have the patient take those uh, about two hours before their procedure. Then um, when they come into the room, I after I've removed the, uh, let the gel work or remove the cottonoids, I do uh, V2 blocks, and really the emphasis of the V2 blocks is the lower part of the canine fossa injection. So I start, I don't go all the way up to the, to the infrarbital frame, and I go about halfway up, and then I inject. And really what we're trying to do there is we're trying to get the lower perforating branches of V2, and then we're trying to get the septal branches, which is what innervate the alar rim and the internal uh, vestibular mucosa. Once you block those effectively on both sides, then the last part of the injection is you actually have marked the nose where you want your implants to sit and you infiltrate the tract of the implant. And the key with all this, the reason you're doing the V2 blocks is so that they don't feel those injections in the, in the ala and in the tract, because those are quite uncomfortable. And, you know, I go back and forth with my colleagues. There's a guy who's a nodolaryngologist in, in Texas named Jose Barrera, who's a very gifted guy. He's a facial plastics guy. And Jose and I go back and forth all the time on, on local anesthesia for Latera. He's a big supertrochlear guy, so you have to block branches, supertrochlears off of V1. 
but I, I always say it's one of the most uncomfortable blocks and there's no way to numb it up. So, you know, you can do it that way too. And, and V1 provides a lot of surface anesthesia to the nose. But either way, once you've done those injections, I mean, literally the patient feels nothing. You can, we use double skin hooks to provide counter traction as we're placing our implants and finding that sweet plane. And uh, the patients don't feel anything. They, you can literally do your procedure without any concern for the patient being uncomfortable. And the procedure itself is extremely quick once uh, good anesthesia is achieved. And then Clarifix, it's really topical tetracaine throughout the nose more generally, and then focally at the treatment spot. And it takes about 10 to 15 minutes. The key with local anesthesia, if I was giving anybody just starting out, you know, kind of one take home high level message, it would be, don't be in a rush, let the anesthetic work. If you give it time, if you let the tetracaine sit in the nose, the nose becomes extremely numb and you can really, you know, you can do very well. And there, you know, if the patient's uncomfortable, the doctor's uncomfortable and it's a miserable experience. So let the medicines work for you. Yeah. It's funny because uh, in the OR when we're, you know, for Afrin plugets in the nose, I have to tell whoever I'm with, like, make sure we're not putting anything in the nose unless we've been five minutes by the clock because I get so like, okay, let's go. Right. And so you have to uh, give it time. In terms of hemostasis, you mentioned uh, oxymetazoline plugets. And I would imagine some of the uh, with epi infiltrative uh, anesthetics also. Is there anything else in terms of hemostasis. I think you also mentioned that when they're not under general anesthesia, you know, in terms of blood pressure and things like that, and they're calmer, that that's also to our advantage. Yeah, 100%. Again, something that might seem counterintuitive is that office patients that are awake, don't they really don't bleed very much. It's really surprisingly, it's shocking in, in a way, but definitely people should believe that because it's true. I always have a couple of different hemostatic agents in my office. I have hemopore, usually have at least one, you know, kind of container that I can mix of either Surgiflow or Flowseal. And it's really, those are for very unique or unexpected situations. And then I have, you know, nasal packing, gel foam, Miracil sponges in my office, you know, and then the last thing we have is, um, you know, we have cautery available. We have hyphricators and suction cauteries available. I was telling the group today with the course I'm at, the group I was speaking to that you can get a val a used Valley Lab cautery machine on eBay for like two hundred bucks. So it's pretty funny, but you could literally have a cautery in your office tomorrow for a couple hundred bucks, and uh, it's pretty much a good idea to have that just in a case of a rare emergency. I, I you barely ever use it. I don't even know when the last time I've used it is, but just to be prepared. Yeah, I would agree with the with all those comments. I also use uh, topical epinephrine on uh, cotinoid plugets. And I found like, for example, if you're doing ethmoid work, uh, you work on one side, you know, particularly those patients, the, the one caveat where you do get some bleeding is a really inflamed uh, sort of osteomedal complex in those uh, patients who have dental infections where the pus has been in the sinus for, you know, a year or more and it's very inflamed. And uh, so, I mean, it's not, it's not like there's a lot of bleeding, but you, you want to mitigate any using. So I find these, uh, the top use of topical epinephrine one in thousand on cotton plugets has been very helpful in that situation. And, you know, of course, like if you're the more meticulous you are with your local anesthesia, the better your hemostasis is going to be up front. So that's another take home point, just, you know, sort of backing on to what uh, Dr. Weeks said. In terms of patient selection, I guess the question is, what are the red flags or who are the patients that you just can't do this or disease? Like when is the disease so bad that you just are like, nah, we should do this in the OR? Right. So I think you've, in your question, you touched on the two sort of the bifurcation of patient assessment or patient selection, right? So one is the focusing on the patient's sort of psychology, sort of personality inventory, if you will. Now, the patient who just has a, a tremendous amount of anxiety, uh, doesn't do well at all on any kind of dental procedures or cannot do that and is very, very apprehensive about even your nasal endoscopic exam. So that is, is a subgroup of patients that may not be appropriate for this kind of a situation. You know, I've found that uh, our older patients do extremely well in the office, and that's fortunate because they also may have more problems with general anesthesia, right? So they do very well. Some younger, high-anxiety individuals, uh, I think, are a little bit more problematic. Then on the other side, the type of case, I think one of the, there are two considerations there. One is definitely the number of procedures that are going to be performed. So if you're going to fix the deviated septum, but you also take out a reasonable number of polyps and an ethmoidectomy and do balloon and sinus dilation, and the procedure might be a little too long for an office base. 
case. So those are the kind of considerations. And I think a lot of it has to do also with your experience and your confidence over the bills over time. Yeah, I would second pretty much the same thing. Definitely if a patient tells you, you know, I don't do well with local anesthesia, listen, do yourself a favor. Just take that patient to the operating If they're literally flashing the red lights in your face, doctor, I've, I've, I have a horrible time at the dentist. I don't do well with local anesthesia. I, the other one is I metabolize the anesthesia really fast. I'm kind of resistant. Yeah, don't even bother. Just take the patient to the operating room. And uh, I think, you know, certain disease states, I mean, I, you know, allergic fungal sinusitis is not an office procedure, you know, most of the time. And patients who have, you know, disruption of the biome, chronic biofilms that need high volume, you know, irrigation, hydrobreedment, you have definite fluid management issues in the office when you get over, you know, 50 cc's of irrigant. If you're using a, one of the high pressure irrigation vacuums that uh, the technology partners make, you know, you can do a fair bit of irrigating and suctioning effectively, but like when you're talking about four liters of, you know, of, of irrigation to blast out, there's no way. So those patients all need to be appropriate side of service. And then lastly, I would, I would just second, there's a group of, of, uh, adolescent patients, you know, it's frequently the, the adolescent, you know, macho men or the, the adolescent females that are, that tend to have some difficulty and the older patients usually fall asleep. And they're the cutest, sweetest people. They wake up, you know, usually you're waking up, Mrs. Jones, when you're finished after she's been snoring for 30 minutes, you're like, Mrs. Jones, you're done. And she, you know, she's like, I'm done. What do you mean I'm done? I didn't even know you started. And like, yeah, that's exactly how we want it. You know, it's, it's really a, a pleasure and they're such sweet people. Yeah. The scoping age uh, adolescents, are, they are tough. Oh, they are tough. You can't, you can't papoose them. <laughs> we got papooses in my clinic, but we can't do that once they're That's past right. like five. Like it's just, you can't. But uh, yeah, there you can scope. Best patients are under six months or over 60. But That's awesome. All right. Really quickly, just one other uh, kind of in terms of equipment. You'd mentioned having a cautery. If somebody wants to start, you know, doing these procedures, what are like the, what, what do you definitely need to have? I think, uh, first of all, I think you have to put some thought into what's the room setup going to be. Obviously, uh, the first thing you're going to need is a good endoscopic system, a tower that actually provides uh, great translumination, great visualization technology uh, companies that have have these and, uh, you know, whatever you're comfortable with, whatever works for you. But that is a mainstay of workhorse of what you're going to need. You're going to also need uh, an appropriate instrument, a camera to do the procedure and then instrument trays. So over time, I guess I started with the basics, uh, through cut forceps, uh, up and down giraffe forceps, and also uh, a micro debrider because you'll encounter sometimes as we do in the operating room as well, a CT scan doesn't appear to have polyps, but then there are some polyps there. And although you can use uh, through cuts, I, I found that microdebeater just is able to take care of it so efficiently and effectively and very rapidly, which is important in, when you're in the office, you want to get the case done fairly quickly. So I think those are sort of very important parts of the equation. Obviously disposables like a balloon dilation system for working with that. Then it depends on whatever else you're going to do. So if you're going to do revision cases, cases that involve ethmoid work, a little more challenging cases, image guidance becomes important. And we added that on fairly early. And then, of course, like in, in my case, I have a septoplasty tray, similar to what we'd have in the operating room. Now we have different treatment options for turbinates, uh, radiofrequency energy, as well as uh, microdebrider for turbinates. So that's kind of the, the equipment that I've developed over time. And I think uh, you start with the the basic work, workhorse endoscopy and camera and, and some, you know, basic equipment tray and that allows you to accomplish cases that are, you know, if you're embarking on this for the first time, it may be, just be single balloon dilation and then progressing it after that. I would say, a, you know, a couple other things that maybe seem obvious uh, or, you know, maybe not even, you know, somebody mentioned, but having a very comfortable exam chair that can recline is really, really important. One that's a, you know, adjustable because really your comfort and the patient comfort are tantamount. Having a high quality suction, you know, making sure that your SMR carts are really suctioning well because you need effective suction when you're, when you have an awake patient who's asleep. And those are simple, obvious things, but amazingly <laughs> they'll let you down and you'll, you'll, you'll regret it. And then, you know, 
remember a couple other things for a, a new adopter who's just trying to get started or maybe a somebody fresh out of training who doesn't have you know the luxury of a of a robust profit and loss and a lot of money coming in you know this is where you leverage your industry partners you literally say to them listen i want to get started i need your help i need you to bring in a demo for me for my first five cases and i need you to let me try a couple cases with your balloon to make sure that this is something so you know you get a couple cases and that's part of trialing the balloon right you know you get a couple free cases to check it out decide which technology you want to use they'll bring in a camera for you to demo they'll bring in a tower i mean they'll really they'll bring in the mini fest set for you know three or four cases so highly recommend doing that um, it'll generate some income it'll generate some confidence and then it'll allow you to really fine tune what you like what you dislike what you're looking for kind of for a more permanent fix and you know one thing i would just say i mean dr seekin and i have a lot of of interest together we we have a couple companies that we've built uh, and we have a technology company and so we're constantly developing tools and so we're we're always thinking of the next thing in ENT and we've got you know we're we're, uh, we're one of the things we've worked on is a is a new kind of endoscopy platform so i won't talk too much about it cuz that's beyond the scope of this but maybe one other day we can come on and tell you a little bit more about it but what i would say is that it it's certainly one of the things we have in mind is that this equipment is extremely expensive and in some ways prohibitive to a, the young new otolaryngologist and it, they're also are very that's a very limiting i mean when you have to put something the size of a refrigerator, you know, the tower and the cart into your exam room. And that takes up a lot of space. And it's sort of, it's against what we're preaching with an office-based mobile kind of cutting edge platform. And so you know, we, were, we were thinking about that when we created our newest innovation, which hopefully we can talk to you about sometime in the near future. That sounds great. We actually have, Backtable has a whole innovation show. And so it would be great to get you guys on Eric Gantworker is one of the hosts for that. He's a pediatric ENT. And it's something definitely I think would be great to highlight your story there. You know, y'all mentioned a lot of benefits in terms of working with industry, whether it's, you know, having when you're first starting out in practice, working with industry to help, you know, get demos and help you get started. And you talked about being how sometimes they can with new devices and techniques, you have to be open because that's where we kind of see the problems maybe we've missed before. But it sounds like also in terms of research opportunities. When you're starting something new uh, and you have something in your practice, there is also research opportunities. What other benefits do you see or why should physicians partner more with industry? I feel like we don't, in terms of in teaching and academic medicine, personally, it, it's not something that we tend to even, I think, talk to our residents about. I realize now it might be a little bit of a disservice if they don't know how to leverage that for their practice. Well, I mean, for me, yeah, it's, a, it's a really great question. I think it's a spot on question, especially for the modern graduating otolaryngologist. I mean, without industry, you know, we wouldn't have the technology that we have today. There's nothing wrong with companies, you know, wanting to develop tools to make money. And that's what drives our ability to have tools, right? What I would say is that just because an industry partner brings you a tool doesn't mean it's a good tool, but you should always at least have an open-minded uh, evaluation and an assessment. And honestly, what I've learned with industry is that there's some incredibly intelligent, incredibly great people. One of the people that, I mean, probably one of the greatest influences in my entire career in medicine is a guy named Josh Macauer. And Josh is the, you know, he's one of the, he's one of the greatest uh, medical device innovators in our country. He's the founder and creator, and now he's the director of the Stanford Biodesign Program. All Josh does is teach young physician scientists how to innovate and how to build amazing technologies. And Josh was the co-founder of Clarent. And uh, he's, I think he's founded and sold seven medical device companies. I mean, he's, just, he's only in his mid-50s. But I mean, you know, without my kind of intro to industry, I never would have met him. We are really lucky to have industry focused on ENT. We've had, what, three or four um, billion dollar plus market cap companies emerge in otolaryngology in the last decade. That's unbelievable. The only other fields that are like that probably in all of medicine are orthopedics and cardiology. I take my hat off to the academy because I think a long time ago, the approach from the academy was, you know, industry is evil. We can't talk to those people. They're just trying to give us pens and bring us lunch and sell us stuff. Well, you can't take a pen. <laughs> right. Now you can't do that anyway. That's what I was going to say. So now they can't even bring us coffee without us having to report it. But what I would say is without those people, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have the innovation that we have in our field. And to, to the Academy's point, I think they've done an incredible job of embracing it. There's a guy named Ron Cooper Smith, who was one of my residency classmates. And Ron is 
head of the program that interfaces otolaryngology with industry. And so I, I take my hat off to the academy. They've done a great job of trying to embrace that relationship and move things forward. Are there any uh, downsides in partnering with industry that you found in your experience or things that a physician coming out or is interested in should kind of look out for? Yeah, I would, you know, within our training programs and uh, not just uh, in the actual academic program, but in, in courses that we're trying to deliver to uh, young physicians or physicians in training, we should probably develop in them or inculcate a sense of being able to critically evaluate technology. I'll look at it from the perspective of, you know, the literature, look at it in terms of, does this make sense? Is it going to really improve the life of my patient? Is it going to deliver what it's supposed to deliver? So some critical analysis capability, I think would be great. And I went throughout my residency program and we didn't really interface with the industry. I think that's probably still the case to a large extent, at least as a resident. And when I was in fellowship with Rod Perkins at Stanford, he was also uh, somebody who had innovated and developed a number of companies. My time there allowed me to be able to critically evaluate or at least try to critically evaluate emerging technologies. So I think it's very important to absolutely have an open mind, but bring a scientific bearing and the bearing of a physician that has the best interest of the patients at the top. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for taking the time to talk with me today. For our listeners, just remember what Dr. Weeks says, be open, don't poo-poo new techniques. And what Dr. Secan said, you're never alone to advance through challenges, build your own team. Um, those are just some straight up life pearls, if you will. Thank you for swinging by. If you're a new listener and for our old listeners, thank you for returning. You can find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, Apple, and Ghana. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Backtable ENT. We love feedback. Reach out to us for topics, ideas, speakers, or if you ever want to come on the show. It's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team lead is Karen Yen with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor Spurgeon Hess. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. <laughs>